0: Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Alex Ventures. BIOS is a community of early-stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alex Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.bc.
1: Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com.
2: We're thrilled to welcome Jim Collins, Professor of Bioengineering at MIT, a Synthetic Biology pioneer, and serial biotech entrepreneur to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us, Jim. Uh, to help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Chris Godbon, and special guest host, Michael Dean, former Chair of Bioengineering at Rice University, and now Entrepreneur in at Coastal Ventures. Michael, can you give our listeners a bit of background on yourself?
3: Sure, I received my BS from Caltech some time ago in chemical engineering, got my PhD in chemical engineering as well from UC Berkeley. I worked a bit with a biotech company called Curigen that had a nice IPO in the late 90s. I did a postdoc in physics at Harvard, and since then I've been a professor of chemical engineering or bioengineering, first at UCLA and then at Rice. I started the system, synthetic, and physical biology program at Rice. That was the first PhD program in the US with synthetic biology in the title. As you mentioned, I rose to chair of the bioengineering department. I've enjoyed working with small companies throughout the years. One of the most interesting ones was Ion Torrent Systems. I was the third person there, did all the original engineering calculations to show that you really could do solid state sequencing way back, and that was a pretty successful exit. More recently, I joined Coastal Ventures and happy to be on the investor side now, working with brilliant minds from academia. So really happy to be with Jim Collins here today.
2: Fantastic, thanks for joining us, Michael. Let's kick things off. Jim, can you share a brief intro with us?
0: Sure. So I'm Jim Collins. Thanks for having me on your show today. And I have a background originally in physics, and then moved into medical engineering, where I studied uh, as a grad student at Oxford. Right out of grad school, I joined Boston University as a faculty member, and for my first decade, primarily focused on whole body dynamics and biomechanics and neurocontrol, applying nonlinear dynamics to various challenges of studying how we walk, run, and maintain balance. Among other things, demonstrated that we could deliver small amounts of noise to the soles of subjects' feet in the form of vibrating insoles to enhance their balance, and most impressively taking a 75-year-old and having them balance as well as a 25-year-old. And then in the late 90s, encouraged by colleagues at Boston University, I made the transition into molecular biology from an engineering perspective and helped launch what became synthetic biology and became very active in systems biology, which is now collectively the big focus of my lab, where we're advancing synthetic biology from a number of diagnostic and therapeutic perspectives and advancing systems biology really to address the antibiotic resistance crisis. I moved to MIT about seven years ago, and I'm in the Department of Biological Engineering and the Institute for Medical Engineering and Sciences, And I also run a lab at the Wies Institute at Harvard, as well as the Broad Institute. And Like Michael, I've been involved with a number of startups, both as a founder and as an advisor, and really happy to have the chance to talk with with you here today.
2: Thanks once again for joining us, Jim. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, As we embark on this episode, one question we like to ask our guest comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you tell us in your eyes, what does inventing the future mean to you?
0: You know, it's a, it's a clever phrase and I, I, I take it very much to heart. You know, I think inventing the future in our world really means how can we advance technology and Michael in my world is how can we advance biological technology and even biology as technology to address a broad range of challenges. And within the theme that we've already kind of touched upon I, I think we're going to see synthetic biology emerge as one of the dominant technologies of this century. And in particular, it's going to be harnessed, I think, to address some of our bigger challenges, be it in medicine, global health, food, water, energy, sustainability. And so very much the inventing the future is creating new solutions, new platforms that allow us to expand our capabilities as humans and really take on our biggest challenges.
2: Fantastic. Well, I'll pass it off to Chris and Michael now to talk about the the Collins Labs, synthetic biology, and cutting edge developments in the field.
4: Thank you, Jez. And diving right in. Jim, as you mentioned, your academic career really began more in whole body mechanics before you made that shift to help launch synthetic biology. Can you share more about what brought you to the field and how your background has helped shape your research perspective?
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So when I was at Boston University, the chair of the Department of Biomedical Engineering, which was my department, um, was Charles Cantor, who had been one of the principal investigators of the genome effort at Berkeley. And the Dean of Engineering at BU at the time was Charles Delissey, who had actually conceived of the genome project when he was a program officer at the Department of Energy. In about 1996, as the genome effort was really beginning to mature and sequencing results were starting to come out at a higher rate and we had these parts lists now emerging for different organisms, primarily microorganisms at the time. There was a real call to bring engineers and more physics-oriented folks into the genome project. And the two Charles introduced me to folks like Eric Lander and Lee Hood. And Eric and Lee and folks like Stu Kaufman challenged me to think about what would become systems biology. That is, could I use the techniques I developed in the dynamics and systems engineering to apply to living cells to really try to reverse engineer natural biomolecular networks? And I was intrigued as with the students in my lab, but this is now 1996, 1997, microarrays had just appeared. So the ability to query thousands of genes simultaneously living cell had just become available. Microarrays were very expensive and interestingly, there were no or very few publicly available datasets. So we ran as fast as we could away from that problem. So kind of said, okay, systems biology really wasn't ready for the tools we wanted to bring in. We began to kind of sit back and say, okay, there are really two kinds of kids who become engineers. The kids who kind of take apart the radio to try to figure out how it's wired up, and those are the kids that become systems biologists. Or the more common are the kids, the tinkerers, who go into the garage, their attic, and will try to figure out how to make a radio out of spare parts or maybe make a go-kart out of a number of parts that could include things like a baby carriage. And we thought about how could we be tinkerers in molecular biology. And with Tim Gardner, my first student space, we began to think about could we put together molecular components from the bottom up in small networks and our efforts in this direction, along with efforts from other labs, helped launch what became this field of synthetic biology.
3: So Jim, as a leader in the field, you've been a driving force developing synthetic biology and enabling applications across diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines, and more. How do you envision synthetic biology will shape the future of human health in the next few years?
0: You know, it's an exciting time, Michael, and, and I think we're still very early. I, you know We're about a little over two decades into the field. I think this past year or two has really sh- seen the field shift from being an emerging field to an early maturing field with healthcare really driving most of those advances. I think the mRNA vaccines as evidence and being based on synthetic mRNA, I think a very good example of how synthetic biology can impact very broadly healthcare. I think the diagnostic efforts that have come out of COVID from synthetic biology, including CRISPR-based diagnostics also point to that, and emerging efforts in gene and cell therapy. So I'm, I'm very excited about how synthetic biology, given its programmable nature and ability to introduce additional levels of control, enabling organisms or bimolecular constructs to sense their environment, make a decision on their environment, and act on their environment, I think are gonna be in great positions to really transform healthcare. And we're at the very, very early stages.
3: Expanding on that, how do systems biology and deep learning fit into the picture you're painting?
0: So I think this is also an area that's become quite exciting quite recently. You know, I think I made the comment that synthetic biology will be one of the dominant technologies of this century. I think AI already is one of the dominant technologies of the century, but has not yet had its impact its potential realized in healthcare and biotech. And I'm tremendously excited about what particularly deep learning approaches can do, both in drug discovery and drug development. We, for example, are advancing such efforts around antibiotic discovery in now the context of a program we're calling the Antibiotics AI Project. And the critical thing there is can we collect enough training data that can enable us to train a model that could be used to look at very large in silico libraries of compounds or to design for the bottom up compounds that could address various indications. My prime interest is treating bacterial infections, but you can envision the need for coming up with molecules to go after viral infections or fungal infections or more complex conditions like cancer, diabetes, neurodegenerative disease. And I think we're at, again, the very early stages as to how Approaches from machine intelligence, approaches from machine learning can be coupled with human intelligence in really innovative ways to significantly advance our ability to come with new molecules to treat a broad range of diseases. That's
4: really interesting, Jim. And I want to take that a step further to expand more into problem solving, problem selection and uh, entrepreneurial lab culture. So here at Alix, we believe that the key to changing the world starts first with identifying the right problems to solve. So how, what has been your selection criteria? And you find that that selection criteria has changed over time?
0: You know, it, I have found that the criteria has changed a bit in as follows that I think we always are directed towards doing something exciting. I'm gonna elaborate that in a second. But where it's changed is that early in my career, We were a big tent. We wanted to do something exciting in physiology, medicine, biotech under a broad banner, initially in nonlinear dynamics, then moving to systems biology, synthetic biology. You came to my lab and you had an exciting idea. We're gonna go for it. Now we've become a bit narrower as I'm in my mid fifties. And so really on the back nine of my career, started the back nine, I've become narrower in really looking to see what can we do specifically in synthetic biology and what can we do around antibiotics? And so if you come in with an exciting idea that doesn't fit in one of those two tents, it's gonna be harder for you to find a spot in the lab and it's harder to engage. Specifically around problem selection, increasingly I'm looking and challenging my young folks to basically identify the problems that are low risk, high gain. And it's interesting when you consider the quadrant of risk and gain is you never wanna be in the low gain. Why waste your time on something that's not gonna have a potentially big impact? But I think in academia, also people fix it a little too much on the high risk, the high risk challenges. We don't know if it's going to work or it might take you a very long time or it might be really expensive to realize the goal is something you generally want to avoid. And I think the most successful academics are those that can identify the problem to which they can get after new insights, come up with a new platform or a new device relatively quickly and again, build around that. So again, taking that time, to think through carefully and identifying those problems those areas that are low risk high gain i think are key to success within the academic world but also in the entrepreneurship world As the venture world knows you spend an awful lot of time trying to squeeze out and pull out the risk in a particular venture and you can do those quick and dirty experiments to identify the key kind of proof of concept study that could say okay this is going to work or not work is critical to then De risking your effort. And I don't think academics spend enough efforts de risking when they're going after that cool next idea.
4: Michael, I'd like to turn that question back to you. While you were at Rice, your lab advanced bioengineering to tackle a number of challenges in human health across infectious disease and immunology. So, what, maybe building on some of Jim's points, in your opinion, are some of today's health challenges that can be advanced through bioengineering, especially now that you're more
3: on the investor side. We truff, We touched briefly on vaccines and the interest in vaccines really developed tremendously over, I'd say, the last 20 years. A lot of that impetus came from the Gates Foundation interest. We've seen just in the last couple of years how powerful the mRNA vaccines can be in treating COVID-19. And I think there'll continue to be tremendous development in efforts on vaccines against infectious diseases and cancers and other maladies, even diseases of the old age in the coming years. Another quite interesting area are neurodegenerative diseases. There are lots of interesting ideas now for how we can slow or maybe even reverse some things like Alzheimer's disease and other diseases of the old age. Cancer or heterogeneity and how that really impacts patient selection and drug regimen treatment, I think is an interesting area that I think will be coupled with sequencing and other proteomics technologies to identify best practices for treating cancer patients. In general, I think digital health and delivery of healthcare are also two tremendous areas where big data and machine learning will help quite a bit.
4: It seems like in both cases, you've talked about diagnostics as one area to give particular attention as we move forward. Jim, uh, your lab has been focusing on everything from CRISPR responsive smart materials to cell-free synthetic biology technologies. What are some of the diagnostic approaches you're most excited about and how did the companies you've co-founded like Sherlock Biosciences start to address the gaps you see in diagnostics today?
0: Yeah, so we, we've been active in diagnostics from a synthetic biology standpoint now for well over a decade, but really got engaged going back seven years ago when we recognized that we could harness the power and diversity of synthetic biology without living cells. Specifically the efforts done by Keith Pardee in my lab, who's been a postdoc, Keith began playing with cell-free systems. The idea that you could open up a living cell remove the machinery of the living cell out of the living cell and play within it a petri dish or test tube. And the machinery in this case could be DNA, RNA, ribosomes, other molecular machines and various molecules like ATP and nucleotides. These systems have been used for decades in molecular biology for various studies. But Keats' major advance was to recognize that he could freeze dry self free extracts along with synthetic biology components onto paper and subsequently rehydrate them, reactivating them and doing so so that they function as they were inside a living cell, but now they're on a piece of paper. We got tremendously excited how this could open up a whole new platform for paper-based diagnostics based on freeze-dried cell-free synthetic biology. We initially did this in the context of looking at antibiotic resistance. And then in the late summer of 2014, used it to develop a diagnostic platform for Ebola in the midst of the then Ebola crisis. But more critically going forward in a year and a half, we actually developed a paper-based platform for Zika in the midst of the Zika crisis of 2016 that actually was deployed as a surveillance tool and a research tool in over six different countries. When I look back on our efforts in 2014 and 2016 in Ebola and Zika, we spoke to many, many different venture groups here in the Boston area. And to one, they loved what we were doing, but to one, they were not interested in investing in diagnostics. And it's interesting, we have obviously a very robust, vibrant venture community here in Boston, but in most cases, much of the money was going into therapeutics where you can sell hope for a decade or two. Whereas in diagnostics, you need to sell product. And the challenge is when you sell product, now you're gonna be a multiple of that, of your revenue. So you're fairly constrained on what your gain can be. And it generally turned turned off investors. Around this time, I actually teamed up with Fong Zen, my colleague at MIT in the Broad and of CRISPR fame. and Fung and I built on earlier work from my lab around using CRISPR-Cas9 as a diagnostic element in our Zika platform to using Cas13, a different CRISPR element, to develop really a quite sensitive diagnostic platform that could get you down to atom range, so single molecule per microliter. And I think the shiny ball status of CRISPR served to attract a number of top venture groups pre-COVID and with Feng Zhang and David Walt and other of our colleagues, we co-founded Sherlock Biosciences with very good capital structure and really with the idea of advancing CRISPR-based and synthetic biology-based diagnostics broadly around molecular diagnostics, really helping to transform molecular diagnostics. And what happened as Sherlock was advancing a number of different diagnostic platforms for various indications is we got hit with the pandemic. But impressively, Sherlock was able to very quickly pivot their programs to develop a COVID test that became the first FDA approved CRISPR based product. It was approved EUA status in May of 2020. And the company was able to very quickly team up with IDT to produce up to a million per week. And then the company and I serve on the board, we decided that it wouldn't be right to profit from the pandemic. So we made a commitment to donate all of our profits to a foundation called the 221B Foundation. And went further and made available all of our tech, all of our IP around CRISPR diagnostics to any group, profit or not, for profit, nonprofit, that would want to develop diagnostics for COVID with the only provisio they need to make the profits back available to the foundation. And the foundation's mission is to use those profits to advance STEM efforts for underrepresented minorities. And notably, 221B Foundation and Shaw Bioscience has now teamed up with five different global diagnostic firms that are on pace to do 10 million tests per month. So looking forward, looking ahead, I'm excited about two things. One is I think that we have just at the very early stages of CRISPR-based diagnostics that offer easy to program, inexpensive, relatively easy to use diagnostics through just a range of challenges in the field and in the clinic, but also more critically of newer efforts in synthetic biology that are affording us inexpensive, easy to use, amplification-free platforms that I think are really gonna open up at home markets and low cost in-field use. So I think one of the positive outcomes of the pandemic, I think, will be a renewed or maybe a needed interest in diagnostics with actually resources now to get behind it to advance the field.
1: Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, Expertise and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls startups at amazon.com. So, oh,
3: Jim. Now that we have the right problems, it's important we build a culture that enables us to solve them. You built a lab that has not only spun out numerous startups, but also generated phenomenal founders. Can you tell us more about what it's like to foster an entrepreneurial research culture in your lab, in the university, and how you think about mentoring scientists and entrepreneurs?
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Michael, you know, I think a few elements. One is that probably the best bit of advice I got Uh, and I think is so true that if you want to be a great lab director, your number one job is to recruit great people. And I think that remains a huge challenge. And I think it's a huge challenge whether you're in a university or you're in a startup or you're in a venture firm or producing a podcast is that there is a talent shortage out there. So we need, I think, to increase our uh, kind of recruiting lens and getting after a greater and diverse scheme. So I think Recruiting is number one. Then it's a matter of when you bring them in, can you appropriately foster them? And I think one of my bigger challenges after the recruitment process is then how do you match the talent, to the, 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 the talent and interest of a, of a young person to an actual project? And that's non-trivial. We rarely have ever are gonna have just the obvious next project in our lab. So we have to spend a lot of time. And then it's, how do you encourage that person to really be the best person they can be to take the risks, fail because most of the time your really good ideas actually turn out not to be very good, but be comfortable in failing. And how do you encourage leadership which becomes a challenge, but working on a team? And that's become a more recent challenge is that the problems we're going after are incredibly complicated and very hard to tackle in singlets, that is in one individual really can't do it. So you now have to create a team and in academia credit is so important It's now how do you appropriately distribute credit? So it's creating that comfortable environment where people can be their own selves, express themselves, encourage them to take risks, encourage them to fail, be innovative and always focus on that high gain project, uh, keeping themselves to high standards, never settling and, and keep pushing it. Now, from the entrepreneurship standpoint, it's really trying to identify the platforms, the multi-product platforms that can make a difference. And to ensure one, that there's a market that's addressable and with an unmet need that we can meet. And then two, really trying to then find the right business partners. I tell my young folks here at MIT that I wish it was different, but I see again and again, there's success stories in these young startups that the technology is only about five to 10% of the story. And it's really the team, the business and the scientific team that's 85 to 90% of the story.
4: I'd, I'd like to dive into it a little bit further and talk maybe more about company building and that sort of academic-led entrepreneurship. So maybe we can start by asking, how do you draw parallels, and you started to answer some of this, between the apprentice model of the PhD and the founder-led journey of forming a new company?
0: You know, it's an, it's an interesting question, Chris. So I, I, think, I think one of the mistakes that a lot of faculty make is To make the assumption that our experience base is academics and the intelligence that we bring either naturally or that's been honed from work will translate well from the academic environment to the business environment and i think that's a it's a mistake that many people make and i've made it myself and i really value the experienced business person the entrepreneur who's made 10 to 20 years of mistakes in the space, but built on it, found their success and way to success as I did as an academic. And so I think it's critically important to convey to the young people that they are also gonna have to be apprenticeships. And it's interesting in biotech in particular that it's very hard to point to examples where the young founder was able to drive the company to great success. It doesn't mean you need to bring in the gray haired character but there's something to be said for those experienced business teams, executives who've done it multiple times. They can come in and either serve on your board or be as an advisor. So I think the critical thing is to be self-aware. Critical thing is to really surround yourself. I, you know, The phrase I love is A's hire A's B's hire C's is you really wanna work hard to just make sure you build that A team and recognize that you may be smart. You may be really smart, but that you're probably out of your zone when you go into a company. Again, I'm involved with a number of companies. My comment to the company is the sooner I'm less involved with the company, the better the company. Meaning my skill set is, you know, I like to come up with a cool new idea, I get to the proof of concept demonstration and it can lead to a paper append. Maybe it can lead to a spin out, but it doesn't lead to an ability to execute on a business plan that can add value every day to a new company. And I know that I have those shortcomings. So it's then finding that right talent uh, that can execute. And it's interesting as I reflect on my experience in business, I think that the barrier to entry in the business world is much too low. I say that in that the barrier to entry into my world, the academic world is very high. You, You need to put in a good amount of time and jump through a lot of hoops. In the business world, it's not as high, and and you know you'll talk about you hear you know ninety percent of companies will fail. I'm not sure if it's an accurate number, but if that's the case, boy, you know that, that it's, the, the threshold is too low, and you don't have ninety percent academic labs failing because you're weaning people out before then, before they have the opportunity to create the lab. And I think we need to set the thresholds higher. And I suspect the very best of venture groups, like Costa Venture, has set those those thresholds higher in order to get to a greater chance for success.
3: Jim, taking this a step forward, your lab has focused on creating technologies to make cells programmable. This has led to you co-founding startups such as Centini Synlogic, Sherlock, Sample 6, and amongst others. I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on Centi, especially as it seeks to develop novel therapeutics by creating a platform to combine gene circuitry and NK cells.
0: Yeah, let me speak to both Centi and Synlogic, which are really in this space. you know, Senti is an effort that I co-founded with Tim Lo, who had been a star student of mine in the very early days of synthetic biology, who became and still is a professor at MIT and decided to take Senti as an option to actually become a CEO. So he is the CEO of the company. He's very well capitalized. The company is advancing a number of different synthetic biology platforms, basically to make adaptive medicines. So to kind of do next generation cell therapy and next generation gene therapy. The idea that you could program NK cells, natural killer cells and or T cells that have additional levels of control that they could, for example, sense multiple antigens, make a logical decision about what was sensed and then take an appropriate therapeutic action and or kind of serve as living thermostats but operating in the patient's environment. And Tim's team is looking really to advance INDs around these living technologies in the coming 18 months or so for a number of indications. And I think impressively has announced two major partnerships one with Spark Therapeutics around using synthetic gene networks to really make next generation gene therapy. So introducing control, and I'll reflect on that, come back in 30 seconds. And second is a partnership with Blue Rock, which is really getting after next generation cell therapy. So, can we use various sensors, decision based circuits? to really enable much more powerful cell therapies around T cells and NK cells. Going back to the gene therapy, it's interesting. The first synthetic gene circuit that we introduced in January 2000 was a bacterial toggle switch. So a bistable switch that could be flipped between two stable states, on or off, a particular gene in control, uh, that could then be flipped with trains and electrical signal or chemical signal or environmental signal. And back in 2000, I would remark that it'll be easy to extend this from bacterial cells to human cells. That turned out not to be the case. But that once we did, the synthetic biology would really open up opportunities in gene therapy, both around providing regulated control around therapies as well as safety switches that could shut off genes that perhaps have adverse reactions. And I said, really, once that field worked out, challenges around safe and effective delivery, now SynBio would come in to offer control. As you know, that field imploded on itself in early 2000 due to some, uh, an untimely death and various clinical challenges, disappeared from the U.S. scene for about a decade, but then reemerged. And I think we're now actually in a position with Senti taking the lead of now using synthetic biology to introduce advanced control that I think will now enable us to have safer and much more effective gene therapies going forward. Shifting gears slightly to the second company of notice, Synlogic, which is now a publicly traded company that has Three clinical trials underway. So Synlogic is not engineering human cells, but is engineering bacterial cells as synthetic biotics, creating new classes of living medicines. And they just announced interim phase two data for PKU, a rare genetic metabolic disorder, where they show that they can engineer E. coli nissle to basically consume phenylalanine, break it down, which is a toxic metabolic byproduct, via orally delivered synthetic biotics in the gut, serving to significantly reduce phenylalanine levels in the blood of PKU patients, which is tremendously exciting on what it opens up for patients. And the company is advancing a number of additional rare genetic metabolic disorder therapies with a trial already underway for one, as well as the therapy of engineering these bugs to go after solid tumors and also have a partnership with Roche where they're looking to engineer bacteria to produce immunomodulatory molecules to address inflammatory bowel disease. As you may know, typically the kind of top line treatments involve biologics like Humira or Remicade that either have to be delivered sub-Q once a week or via infusion pumps every four to six weeks. Imagine instead you could take orally every day an engineered bacterium that would not sledgehammer your immune system, but instead deliver locally at the site of inflammation in either your large intestine or small intestine immunomodulatory molecules that could address your condition. So I'm very, very excited about what the company can do and see that there are tremendous opportunities of addressing other conditions, be it diabetes, obesity, gut dysbiosis, as well as tapping into the gut-brain axis of engineering bacteria that could deliver small molecules that could be used to address affective disorders and potentially to an area that Michael mentioned earlier, even neurodegenerative conditions.
4: You've mentioned, especially with Synlogic and Senti, how many significant advances cell therapies have made, even though I would potentially make the argument that synthetic biology at the moment, cell therapy at the moment is more of a square wheel. We, we've we only begun, as you've said, to tap into the potential of the space. Yeah. So are we in a stage? Can you think of, or can you tell us more about which technologies and platforms you believe will need to first develop for synthetic biology to really reach its potential? What's the next inflection point in
3: the field?
0: You know, it's an interesting position and point, Chris. I I think, as I said, I think it's still very early in the field. I don't think biology is anywhere close to being in an engineering discipline. I don't think we, and we is the broad we, know enough biology to engineer components circuitry elements to function in a predictive manner so i think we have many things that need to go forward i do think advanced computing tools i think it'll become tremendously useful. when i think back to the early days of synthetic biology computation really was the early driver we did very simple models of synthetic circuits that were precursors to actually our efforts to build the circuits guided the building then that kind of went aside as more and more extender groups came in but as we now are getting to more complicated circuits, be they for cell therapies, in human cells or cell therapies and bacterial systems, where we also now are interacting with the complex host cells and multiple host cells. We need advanced computational tools and advanced data sets from an AI deep learning standpoint and broadly advanced biocomputation bioinformatics to gain insight into how can we better design components and circuits? How can we better interact those with the host cells? And so I'm tremendously excited about where a more advanced schemes can come in. Second is that I think we still are significantly lacking in parts and components. We're about a little over two decades into the field, and yet we still continually reuse just a few dozen parts to create different circuits. The analogy I give it's as if we're asking an Intel engineer to create an integrated circuit for a professional product using an electronics kit that you'd get at the gift shop from a kid's science museum. It just wouldn't happen, and yet that's where we are. So I think it's tremendously exciting to think about how can we expand those parts, whether through searching through advanced schemes and or synthesizing and evolving. I think we need to dramatically expand our toolkit in addition to computation as well as insights. And then further, Chris, I think we need to do a great job of recruiting young talent that with talent, we can really advance this field without talent, without diverse talent, I think we'll be stymied.
4: Taking that in a slightly different direction and uh, given your background, Mike, and your background, Jim, I'm sure our listeners would be curious to hear your thoughts about that sort of latent entrepreneurial talent in academia and about professors migrating more into the entrepreneurial space. Either, Jim, as you talked about as co-founders, Or for those maybe who have a business sense, taking that full step away, for lack of a better phrase, from the chalkboard and into the boardroom. Jim, do you want to share your thoughts?
0: Yeah, you know, I I think it's, it's an interesting time. You know, when I think back to starting as an academic in 1990, translational work was viewed negatively. So translational work was viewed as being dirty. If you were thinking of starting a company or licensing or even patenting. Your technology or your discovery, you were viewed as not being a very serious scientist. And that began to change in the late 90s as the stock market took off. And you'd go to academic parties, people were talking about the stocks they own or the companies they launched. But more importantly, what I've seen in the last few decades is a shift on the emphasis on impact. Meaning when I started in 1990, the idea would be as a professor, you're going to publish papers, hopefully in good journals that will be cited and have an impact, maybe launching new fields or inspiring other labs. You're going to have an impact by training students that hopefully go out and have meaningful careers. Now the question is how many people's lives did you touch beyond your students? How many patients have you impacted? How many consumers? Has your product generated revenue? Has your discovery led to revenue? And you look at some major prizes and recognition in academia that it often is secondary to a therapy that was advanced or a diagnostic or a tool that's had a big impact. And so I think increasingly professors are seeing that it's important to get engaged translationally and it's being recognized by the field as being important. And so we're increasingly seeing professors getting involved with entrepreneurial activities, increasing serving on boards. What I like, and even it's is the flip side, Chris, is that my, you know, my dad, who's still with us, he's an electrical engineer who trained in the 50s. In the 50s, boy, he had a, an incredibly meaningful and robust engineer experience where he learned computation, mathematics, but as well as hardcore design principles and worked in the labs, worked with real machines, worked with real things. And I, thought, I think we've seen a shift in academia increasingly toward mathematical and computational approaches at the expense of the harder tech. I think that's changing and what we're also seeing is a recognition that we need to get the folks from industry, from business, the entrepreneurs back into the university to help teach our young folks. So increasingly we're seeing really hybrid models going both ways. Professors that are both with their feet at say at MIT but also having a position at Uber or Amazon or Google and vice versa having very established executives, entrepreneurs, venture folks, Maintaining their main position in their venture firm or their company, but also being professors of practice in university. And I think we'll see a very healthy push towards training young people who can have that impact. In the for profit and nonprofit world, but through impact investing and social investing now coming forward.
4: Michael, as a professor who has now pivoted more into the entrepreneurial realm yourself. Care to
3: share your thoughts? I used to tell my students something pretty similar to what Jim just mentioned, that in engineering, mechanical engineers, they can design cars or even airplanes now on computers, and we're not really there yet in bioengineering, but that's where we want to be. And I think this possibility is really enabled by synthetic biology and systems biology, and the power of those tools are being recognized by investors, and this is now beginning to access this tremendous source of latent talent in academia both both from the students and the postdocs but as you mentioned also from faculty members either taking sabbaticals or really stepping away from academia and this is tremendously exciting for the future so Jim as we're thinking about academic-led entrepreneurship particularly in the area of COVID What do you think about the responsibility held by cutting-edge researchers as we consider technologies to explore and spin out? You mentioned your start of the 2021B Foundation, for example.
0: You know, I think we have a very big responsibility, Michael. And and I think it's important uh, to keep certain human tendencies in check. And those tendencies would be ego and greed. And to recognize the important position we hold. Uh, from a leadership standpoint. So for example, I'll be very explicit. I don't think people should be profiting from the pandemic. I think we should be making available our new technologies inexpensively and broadly, widely to all those who need them. I think the 221B Foundation, which is named after Sherlock Holmes fictional address at Baker Street, I think is an excellent example. And I think it goes beyond that, even the current pandemic. I think we can do good and do well. I don't begrudge anyone who's done well for themselves. But I think we have a responsibility as we do well to give back, whether through philanthropy, through our time. There's only so much money anybody needs. And I think right now there's just so much capital flowing into biotech that I hope increasingly companies will recognize that there are many factors that should go into decisions above and beyond just the profit bottom line. And I think increasingly investors in the public markets are also gravitating towards. as we see increased interest in ESG, for example, and environmentally smart and sustainability. And I think we need additional social engagement broadly in biotech in the face of what we're seeing on the heels of the pandemic.
3: Was this set of responsibilities, you just listed a big driving factor in your launch of the Antibiotics AI project. And can you tell us a little bit more about that project?
0: Yeah, it was. So You know, I'm I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to speak about this. So this is an effort that we've now launched at MIT. Growing out of collaborations that I did with Regina Barsley and Tommy Jockla and now John Stokes, who's a professor at Mass University. And I've been interested in antibiotics and focused on antibiotics for now over 15 years. We are facing a crisis, a global crisis, in addition to the current pandemic in infectious disease. And this is around antibiotic resistance. So the number of resistance strains has been growing decade upon decade. And unfortunately, the number of new antibiotics being developed and approved has been dropping decade upon decade. The latter largely due to the economic market for antibiotics being broken. We typically take antibiotics acutely like for a day or for a week, and they're often sold cheaply. Whereas unfortunately, it costs just as much to develop an antibiotic as it does a cancer drug or blood pressure drug. But a blood pressure drug or a cancer drug we can sell quite expensively, and you often have to take it for the rest of your life. As a result, pharma and biotech are getting out of the antibiotic space while the need for antibiotics is growing. The hit commission estimates that if we don't address the antibiotic resistance crisis, that by 2050, 10 million people each year globally will be dying from antibiotic resistant infections outpacing deaths due to cancer. Interestingly, relative to the current pandemic, bacterial infections are playing a major role. One out of seven patients who are hospitalized with COVID have a bacterial co-infection. 50% who die have bacterial co-infection. So we, we are facing a dire crisis with not enough resources going into it. So we took initiative to launch two things. One is the Antibiotics AI project that we're, I'm leading at MIT, really looking to see, can we harness the power of AI in order to both discover and design novel antibiotics against some of the world's nastiest pathogens. And so we've made really great advances over the first 10 months of the project. But along with the Antibiotics AI project, we've also launched a nonprofit called Fair Bio. Bear is a French word for lighthouse, and the recognition that we need to develop certain things as public goods, and it goes back to your earlier comment, Michael, around the pandemic and the need for social impact. But viewing antibiotics as a public good, can we advance the most promising molecules in the antibiotics AI project through to clinical trials through partnerships with pharma and biotech nation states and other nonprofits, really with the hope that we can expand our antibiotic arsenal and use? the power of AI to give our wits an advantage over the the genes of these nasty pathogens. And I actually remain hopeful that we can and building on an earlier comment, I think one of our challenges also is trying to convince young people that working on antibiotics is important, tractable and exciting. And we have some efforts underway to try to do that to really get this next generation engaged so that we can keep these resistant bugs at bay.
2: Thanks for sharing, Jim. Uh, it's been a fun, action-packed almost hour here. We'd love to cap things off with a few rapid-fire questions before we come to a close. Um, sure. Having been an inspiration to so many of the listeners in our audience, uh, we, we'd love to flip it around. Uh, who inspires you, and why?
0: Boy, that's that's interesting. You know, I I, I do look to successful entrepreneurs. I, I find myself reading. Reading books, so you know, I won't name names, but folks who've actually been able to build companies and continue to build companies, I think means a lot. For me, my Plus, I'm very committed to my family. I'm really inspired by both of my kids. My daughter, Kate just finished at MIT. She's starting her studies at the University of Cambridge, and she's worked incredibly hard to master AI and with interest in neuroscience and in largely male-dominated field and has held her own and done tremendous well. And my son, Danny, who's a sophomore at Duke, who's just grown into an amazing young guy who has struggled himself with inflammatory bowel disease and handled it much more gracefully than I have as his dad and has advanced his physical prowess to be a D1 athlete for Duke in the face of really big challenges. So I think both Katie and Danny probably inspire me on a daily basis, both to be a better person, but also to focus my energies on problems that matter given the challenges they've each had to face.
2: Love the family first mentality, definitely an inspiration for us all here, Jim. Um, Would also be great to hear uh, as we kind of look forward, as we've had an amazing podcast here and chatted through some of the many problems facing the field, uh, as as we look ahead, what do you believe are some of the grand challenges facing life sciences over the next 30 years, if you
0: will? I would say... In the life sciences, I think the number one is how do we better embrace the complexity of living systems and harness that complexity to our benefit? I think we've kitted ourselves. I think we've too much focused on reductionism at the expense of complexity and then kitted ourselves for some of the insights that we gain at the expense of truly benefiting from harnessing these living systems. Second, a topic that we didn't touch upon, but that if I were 30 years younger, and restarting. I would still get into synthetic biology. I would focus on advanced computation, coupled to experiments. But in addition to problems in biomedicine, I would focus on how we can harness biology to address some of our big challenges in sustainability, environmentalism, and climate change. I think biology will offer some fascinating solutions. It's not gonna be the only set of solutions, but I think fascinating solutions to some of these bigger challenges. And climate change is certainly near the top, if not at the top of everyone's list.
2: So now that we've outlined the problems over the next 30 years facing us, uh, let's flash forward to that point. Uh, can you describe biotech 2050? Where will we be?
0: So that's interesting. So biotech 2050, so now we're 29 years out. I get asked a lot of what's going to happen in 10 years. And you say, not very much. That's not too far out. You know, if we were 30 years out, that's, that's decent. You know, now you're back, if I think back 30 years to when I started. You know, we've now advanced... Uh, in many ways, particularly now with multiple new enzymes that have expanded our capability, CRISPR being at the top, ability to use computation to get after sequencing. So when I look out 30 years, I think sequencing will now be a dominant tool that will allow us to query remarkable aspects of nature. I think synthesis, DNA synthesis, will now also have caught up and be cheaper. I think our ability to harness computation to understand how components interact in a cell will have advanced significantly in the context of data-driven database models to give us new insights. So I think our ability to engineer for solutions will have expanded dramatically. And I think we will see biotech touching many aspects of our daily lives well beyond what it's doing presently. And that would include food and water, materials, energy, health, and broadly our environment.
2: As we wrap up here, uh, any closing thoughts or shameless plugs you'd like to share with our audience?
0: Yeah, I guess for the young people, boy, you know, I wish I was, again, 30 years younger. I think there's so much to be discovered, so much to be developed. It's a great time to be a young person. And I think that there are just so many tremendous challenges in the notion of harnessing biology as technology, looking at synthetic biology, looking at systems biology, advanced AI applied to biology medicine is going to be a font of tremendous innovation and tremendous advances. And I hope we have our mid-career people and our senior people who will mentor those young people and give them the opportunities, give them the resources to help them realize their dreams because we need them. We need this young talent to address these problems because unfortunately the problems are getting nastier and more complicated.
2: We've, uh, we've teased a lot of fun topics here today, Jim. Uh, how can our audience know more about your work?
0: You know, probably for us, it's, it's checking on our website. We've got a fairly active website that's up to date. And uh, if anybody would like to reach out and send me an email, I, I do try to respond to most of the email queries that I get.
2: Fantastic, Jim. Thank you for an absolutely incredible episode. I'm sure listeners here will be craving for more. We're very grateful for your time. Thanks again.
0: Thanks, Chaz.
1: Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, Please email hcls startups at amazon.com.
0: Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit BIOS.community or alix.vc.